Heavily accented philosophy of law, a podcast powered by the Alp Project. Okay, we come, welcome to this first episode of this podcast. Here we have Professor Gerald J. Postema, Emeritus Professor of the University of Carolina and Chapel Hill. Thank you very much for coming. Yeah, I'm delighted to be here. What a wonderful day and a wonderful time. And I'm really pleased to have a chance to talk about the rule of law. Yeah, this uh, fantastic book like Law's Rule that was edited, I think, last year in the Oxford University Press. Mm -hmm. Yes, in November 2022. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little about the contents of the book. Maybe we can start for uh, with some brief overview of your conception of the rule of law. Delighted. The, the phrase rule of law um, used, used to be um, a phrase simply in the, um, the lecture halls, but it's now come into the public discourse um, all over the place. Politicians, pundits, people in the public square uh, talk about it. And yet um, it's subject to a great deal of contestation and capture. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite poet Dante said, justice is so lovely that even those, even its enemies love it. <laughs> and that's even more true of the rule of law. It's mm -hmm. under constant attack and content, constant contestation threats um, around the world mm -hmm. um, and in my own country. Um, the strategy of this book was, was not to um, settle everything, but to provide a framework within which these debates, these discussions, these arguments can be located in a way that we can make some progress in understanding the rule of law mm -hmm. and its importance for us. So the strategy was to first identify what I take to be its core aim, um, and then look at its moral foundations, mm -hmm. and upon that basis think about um, the, the most important, um, what I call institutional realizations of that ideal. Um, they vary because um, they must be adjusted to the social and economic and political cultures of each community. They will not be all the same. Um, and yet they draw on the core idea and, their, and its moral foundations. Mm -hmm. So um, the rule of law is not simply the rule of any laws. Laws can be terrible. Laws can be wonderful. They can be majestic and they can be monstrous. Mm -hmm. um, and so the rule of law makes demands, moral demands, moral and political demands on laws and on those who wield power. Um, my idea, my proposal is to think about the rule of law as concerned about power, mm -hmm. about arbitrarily exercised power, not about disorderly behavior, but about disorderly power. Um, and so I propose to, to, to take as the core aim uh, the, the tempering of arbitrary power with law as the means of achieving that aim. So there's two parts, um, the aim tempering power, the means law. That suggests there might be other ways of also tempering power, but mm -hmm. laws, we look to law, rule of law looks to law for that purpose. So um, what I like to say is when the rule of law is robust in a political community, mm -hmm. it provides protection and recourse against the arbitrary exercise of power through the tools of law, mm -hmm. right? Um, so that's the main aim. Um, the success of the rule of law lies very importantly in the uh, exercise of mechanisms for holding power wielders accountable. Mm -hmm. All right. From this core idea, I think um, three principles follow, um, although one of them has three parts. Okay. <laughs> um, the three principles are these. I call them sovereignty of law, mm -hmm. equality in the eyes of the law, mm -hmm. and fidelity. By sovereignty, I mean law alone must rule. Um, and that suggests, one, that 
Governing power is legitimate only when it is ordained or authorized by law. I call that exclusivity. Secondly, that law um, governing power must be exercised through the law or by means of the law and not outside of it. Um, and third, reflexivity, which is the idea that all those who govern with the law must equally be governed by it. If you govern with it, you must be governed by it. Mm -hmm. I call that reflexivity. So that's sovereignty, yeah. laws, sovereignty. Um, the second point, equality in the eyes of the law, by which I mean um, all those who are subject to the law must also have equal access to its protection and recourse. Um, finally, fidelity, which I take to be in some sense the animating spirit of the rule of law. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> On this um, view, um, law can't rule on its own. Institutions don't function on their own. They function only when there are people of integrity um, and responsibility who um, make those institutions work. Um, and um, my claim here is that all members of the community are responsible for holding each other and law's officials accountable under the law. Mm -hmm. um, law can only rule when there is this ethos, I call it, of fidelity in the um, ruling community, but also in the um, larger political community. Mm -hmm. That's the animating spirit of the rule of law. <clears throat> um, I just might mention a few things here about the tools or the toolbox of the Please. rule of law. Um, very briefly, um, I go into much greater detail in the book, but um, very briefly, laws are normative in the sense that laws don't make people do things, don't goad them, they guide them. Laws provide norms for people to follow and reasons for them to follow those norms. And as a result, um, law addresses the, um, the deliberative capacities of those who are subject to them. It doesn't move them, it provides reasons for them. Uh, laws also must be public in two senses. One, it must be public in the sense that it addresses, um, it's addressed to a public, that is to a community um, that has to interact amongst each other. Um, it also makes the exercise of power public. It's public in both of those senses. Um, and then the crucial thing here for our purposes is that <clears throat> the rule of law, as I understand it, is the rule of a discipline of deliberative reasoning. Um, it's not just a set of rules. It's a framework for deliberative reasoning, first of all, amongst, say, courts and um, public officials, but it's addressed to and engages a whole political community. So we might say laws rule is the rule of deliberative reasoning. <clears throat> um, the, if that's the core idea with some of the tools, um, we have to ask, why do we care? I mean, the rule of law makes serious demands on those who wield power mm -hmm. and serious demands on the laws by which they wield power. Um, and why should we care? Um, so we have to ask what foundations are there mm -hmm. for the rule of law? What moral foundations are there? And I propose that we understand the moral foundation in terms of a, um, a complex value I call membership. Yep. Membership is um, a composite of a number of different values that are complementary, but also mutually limiting. Mm -hmm. um, but the main idea is, <clears throat> Um, it's a membership is a kind of vision of community um, in which members are bound together by their history, by their interdependence. Um, and it's characterized by what I call um, mutuality, mm -hmm. um, mutual commitments that are expressed through and organized by mutual responsibilities. So it's characterized by mutuality and by peerhood. Um, that's a peculiar way of putting equality, but I mean um, not equality of condition,
but I mean equality of status. Um, peerhood is a condition, a situation, a, a framework within which um, in public matters, um, people can look eye to eye, see eye to eye, um, no one of whom is subordinated to another. Um, they also, uh, it in, has a, a notion of inclusion, but inclusion that makes very clear that the diversity amongst people be recognized and respected. Um, and so um, in the, in the um, American phrase on many of our coins and the like, e pluribus unum, mm -hmm. out of many, one or unison, I want to say no, no. Um, it's e pluribus fugue, as if there were a polyphony of different voices, not the same voice, different voices that come together into a kind of overall unity, but never unison. <clears throat> um, and then, if we take those things seriously, individual dignity um, will be um, a high priority, as well as individual freedom, now understood as freedom from domination by others. Once you get that point into the picture, you'll see that the rule of law is there to serve that aim because its um, focus is on the exercise, arbitrary exercise of power and trying to temper and, and protect against that and provide recourse against that. And so um, the rule of law, law, when it serves the conditions, realizes adequately the conditions of the rule of law, will serve this deeper moral foundation. So that's, that's the first two stages. Then um, what I think is really important for us to understand is that the rule of law is an institutionally realized ideal. That means it operates, it functions, it makes its demands through institutions, through practices. Uh, and those institutions and practices um, must then give expression to, must realize in that sense, um, the core aim and those three principles I mentioned, sovereignty, equality, and fidelity. <clears throat> so um, what kind of institutions? Well, we can talk really down into um, the, the weeds on this, but to put it very generally, um, we can talk about maybe three or four things. One. Um, all ruling power must be exercised through the law, and laws must meet the um, widely accepted conditions, constraints of legality. Um, they, laws must be general, prospective, intelligible, and the like, and procedures by which um, laws are administered must be fair, impartial, and the like. Um, then the structures of government must be such that they are mutually conditioned. They are um, engaged in what is often called from Montesquieu on um, checks and balances, okay? Um, meaning that they don't just have different powers, but the powers are intersected in such a way as that um, we must maintain both the independence and yet the accountability to these others. I call that structure, and it could take many different forms, but that structure, really important structure, um, a structure of horizontal accountability. Right? Um, horizontal because the different portions of government um, relate to each other. They are, as I say, both autonomous or independent and yet have to give account to other parts. Um, also crucially needed, um, institutionally needed, are, are associations and structures within civil society to provide the, um, the organization and the discipline for citizens engaging in their responsibilities of holding uh, the wielders, wielders of power accountable. And so we need, um, premier here, um, um, a free and independent press, mm -hmm. media. Um, we need, um, I think, um, crucial for this purpose, our universities. Um, where um, we can speak out and speak at and to those who exercise power from our understanding of the way the world works. 
Um, we need um, NGOs of various kinds. We need um, civil society versions of um, ombudsman kind of things. We need various mm -hmm. structures within civil society to make it possible for um, the political community as a whole, its members, um, to engage their responsibilities of holding um, those who wield power accountable. <clears throat> and finally, what's very crucial for um, the realization of the rule of law is um, a strong legal profession mm -hmm. committed to the rule of law. Um, lawyers and judges are guardians of the law. They're, they maintain the integrity of the legal system. <clears throat> but they also play two other crucial roles. One is they are indispensable, lawyers especially, indispensable intermediaries between um, ordinary citizens and those um, government officials of all kinds, courts, um, um, the uh, civil service, uh, bureaucracy, all those things. Um, they're crucial intermediaries because um, if the rule of law is to provide protection and recourse, then those who um, um, are subject to the law has to have some way have to have some way of um, moving the levers of law, mm -hmm. and the lawyers are crucial for that. Um, also, lawyers are crucial for exercising themselves. I want to underline this: exercise themselves. Um, the um, responsibility of holding leaders accountable. They are in a special position, they and judges, are in a special position to, as we sometimes say, speak law to power. Okay. That maybe leads me to talk about some threats. Shall we do that? Yeah, of course. Okay. Um, I want to distinguish between threats and challenges to the rule of law. <clears throat> Challenges to the rule of law I have in mind are um, the kind of uh, skepticism about the idea, okay. about the ideal. Um, that's just not worth our attention, or that's just um, too costly, or that's unintelligible. Mm -hmm. Some people want to say, um, I want to argue that there is a notion of rule of law um, appropriate even in the transnational, international domain. Yeah. And people argue, eh, there's no such thing as law in the international domain. Um, and so the, the notion of the rule of law in the international domain is empty. That's a challenge as a kind of fundamental skepticism of the idea. Threats are different. Threats are um, elements, and we'll get the details of this in a moment, elements that um, engage um, forces um, that decay um, a robust rule of law, make it difficult to function. Not a challenge, not a skepticism about it, but um, something that undermines it, a kind of toxin that um, gets into the political system um, and makes rule of law difficult to function. So I want to talk about threats first, and we'll get a little bit to challenges later. Let's do that. Okay, let's yes, do that. Yes, of course. Threats. Um, I'm a philosopher, so I make lots of distinctions. Here's another distinction. <clears throat> I want to distinguish between acute or active threats mm -hmm. and chronic threats. Let's take acute threats first. What I mean by that are um, ongoing activities that are threatening. But here it's important, I think, to see that um, mere breaches of the law or even violations of breaches of standards of the rule of law, mm -hmm. some institutionalized standards, some norms, constitutional norms, the like, mere violations of them are not alone threats. What is threatening is when those breaches, those violations of laws or constitutional norms or even standards of the rule of law itself, when they are not met, by adequate responses demanding accountability for it. So the threat comes when there's a breach and accountability mechanisms don't work. When, there's, uh, when the response is weak or maybe mute 
mm -hmm. um, where it doesn't function. It has to have those two elements. Um, so you, we might think of the rule of law in this sense as an, a kind of homeostatic system um, where um, things are in equilibrium and forces either internal or external can um, disturb the equilibrium, but the accountability mechanism is an equilibrating force. Yeah. It brings it back in. So we have to see it in, in that respect. And I'm interested in the, the, the way those mechanisms of accountability um, can begin to erode or fail, mm -hmm. and so we have real threats. I want to think of chronic threats are um, elements deeper in the conscience, in the consciousness, in the ethos of the political community um, that make it difficult for those activities of accountability to work mm -hmm. or, or motivations for them. So um, the, let's talk about um, acute, some acute threats. Um, a very wise justice of the Indian Supreme Court some years ago, um, a man called H.R. Khanna, said three marks of the decay of the rule of law are a docile bar, a subservient judiciary, and a choked and coarsened conscience. I want to build on that. Um, so the the thought here is that we've got I kind of, it's kind of a nice um, distinction of, of of those who are holding responsible, right? Um, I think I think of two groups here: lawyers and judges. Mm -hmm. I call them first responders. You know the 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 fire people, the ambulance drivers that come to a, an emergency for the first time and try to get things under control a bit <laughs> so that the, the larger problems can be solved later. But I call lawyers and judges, and I want to add to their, them that group, um, political officials, mm -hmm. elected officials, maybe even um, policy leaders in the civil society. I'm going to call them first responders. And then the rest of the community, I want to call them auxiliaries. So what we have here is a distinction between first responders and auxiliaries docile bar, subservient judiciary, we might say mute um, or irresponsible political officials on the one hand, and those in the community that are quiet or um, afraid or alienated or something like that. So acute threats. <clears throat> Amongst these, you might um, pick out, um, unfortunately, the world is full of too many such examples. Um, certainly in my country, um, but elsewhere around the world and in Europe as I know it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they take various forms. Power wielders may blatantly and defiantly violate the law or informal norms, um, while at the same time loudly professing their commitment to the rule of law. I'll remember Dante, um, even, the, even the enemies love the rule of law. <clears throat> But also, they often work through intimidation and harassment, um, either by their own forces, the pile wheelers' forces, or by their <clears throat> sort of um, background um, supporters. Mm -hmm. uh, well, where the power wheelers, uh, those in political office, um, will turn a blind eye to that kind of uh, intimidation. <clears throat> Another strategy is to enlist co-opt um, and maybe corrupt officials or others, lawyers often, um, in um, a project of um, using the law to subvert the rule of law, um, using devices of the law to subvert it. I can give you an example from my own um, state. Mm -hmm. um, just last week, um, it looks like within an appropriations bill, a budget bill, not straightforward legislation, but in a budget bill that has to fund the government and um, medical services and all that kind of thing. They put in a clause mm -hmm. that expanded um, um, first instance courts um, by about 30%. They added new courts. And 
all of the judges are to be appointed by the, the ruling majority. So notice how we've just used the legal system to, in this sense, weaken um, the absolutely critical constraint on the exercise of executive power, the judiciary. Um, so often they will um, engage in what um, political scientists call um, hyper-scrupulous legalism, mm -hmm. um, using the law against the law. And what's often troubling is the way in which lawyers are so very actively involved in that, uh, twisting and turning law for that purpose. Um, so the threat here is that um, first responders seem to have, um, in, in such cases, seem to have lost their sense of integrity, their sense of commitment, their um, sense of responsibility. Um, that's the decay, the docile and subservient um, parts of the first responders. And that may be just um, a, a personal failure. Mm -hmm. What Kana's thought suggests is that it might have deeper roots. Not just personal failure, but um, there's something in the political community more generally that either encourages or um, they've cut themselves off from this um, deeper source. That's where the chronic problems come in. Mm -hmm. So personal conscience, personal integrity, um, that's the kind of thing that is educated, supported, corrected um, in the moral climate more generally. Um, personal integrity lives and breathes in its moral environment. <clears throat> and when toxins enter that moral environment, <clears throat> when toxins enter that moral environment, um, the, the, the kind of um, soil in which it must grow um, um, fails. Those are the chronic. That's where we can locate the chronic threats. Mm -hmm. um, especially if we follow um, Justice Kana, that's where if there is a coarsened and choked conscience, it can't do the work of holding our first responders to their own tasks and the first responders then to their task of upholding the rule of law. <clears throat> Chronic threats. I can think of um, a few. Um, one of them um, we might call just apathy. Um, after all, um, engaging in fidelity, performing the um, responsibilities of fidelity, take time and energy, and people have to live their lives. Um, but more importantly, um, there are various forces that turn people away from the political. Um, maybe it's economic problems, um, or it might be other things, but that, that apathy, um, can lead to allowing the other forces to go on without the kind of education and correction and support that, that they need, the first responders need. Um, one especially important source of threat in this case is something I would call alienation. Mm -hmm. And by alienation here, I mean um, the, the idea that um, people would think, um, sure, that's what people could do, but why should I? Uh, why should I get involved? Um, political scientists have often asked the question, why would, why would political authorities, why would those who wield political power subject themselves to the law? Um, after all, that's a constraint that kind of ties them down and bridles their activity. Um, and I think a, an equally important question is, well, why should people do that? What, what gives them the motivation? Why do they care? Um, my friend Martin Krieger once mentioned a, an old proverb that said, law is like a door in a meadow. You can walk through it if you want, but why? Why? Um, and if, if that sense gets deep into the mindset 
into the, the ordinary thinking of people in the community. If why should I engage in it is the, the, the primary question, um, then we really have lost a source of crucial um, fidelity. Um, one cause of that could be the fact that um, what these people who feel alienated see is that the law, which is supposed to protect the powerless from the powerful by bridling the, bridling the powerful and providing the powerless protection, what they see is no law protects the powerful um, and subjects them to um, um, the, the arbitrary actions of the powerful. And they say, if that happens, what, why should I support the law? Because the law, it seems, is not even working in my behalf. That's a failure of the law, of the rule of law, but it affects people because it affects their commitment to anything like fidelity. Why would that happen? Well, sometimes it, what happens is um, the economic, especially econ the distribution of wealth and other forms of social power um, are such that those who, um, those who are subject to that power have no access to the law. Um, they are, in effect, cut out of the law. They have no way of moving the levers of law. Um, and given that, the law just looks like someone else's power, someone else's arbitrary power. So alienation, sometimes caused by economic or other forms of social inequality, can actually erode Fidelity, and so erode the um, the, the 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 root, the the um, the soil in which the rule of law can actually function. Another uh, threat here, which I want to mention very briefly, is just the extent to which um, what I call our moral horizons narrow. Mm -hmm. If our horizons narrow to such a point that we're focused only on our own group, our own tribe, our own people, um, then we're not going to be able to see um, threats, challenges to our um, common um, mode of living. Um, we will not be able to see common needs, and so you'll be unable to see um, opportunities for common effort to meet those needs. Mm -hmm. um, I think about the um, reactions within the United States, for example, to um, constraints on uh, requiring people to wear face coverings during COVID. Mm -hmm. um, the result of um, some stringent um, requirements um, early on in the COVID um, pandemic, um, where people said, no, I will not. It's a fundamental individual right that I don't have to wear a mask, um, which signaled to me the inability to see the common need um, and a, a role of each in meeting that common need. The sheer possibility of there being such seemed to not be available to them. That's an erosion, a narrowing of the moral horizons. And if you have moral horizons so narrowed, you're never going to be able to take up um, the commitments of fidelity, which are commitments to mutual obligations. Okay. One last threat, um, which <clears throat> um, I think we need to meet. It's again a, a, an acute one, but it's so prevalent now um, in many countries around the world, um, and that's the corruption of public discourse. Um, the, the, the media are flooded with disinformation um, intentionally, not just through the usual operations of um, a democratic free system. Um, it's flooded with different disinformation with some, what sometimes people call power lies, um, lies that are so clearly um, inconsistent with the very experience of people that they are not about truth at all. They're about expressing power, um, power lies and the like. Those are used to exploit um, nascent elements of polarization, um, and the result is that um, <clears throat> the whole 
um, structure of public discourse is greatly um, corrupted. And finally, um, at least in my experience recently, what I've seen is that um, public officials um, now attack the very mechanisms of accountability themselves, undermining them, challenging them, um, um, weaponizing them, so that every attempt at holding a public official or others accountable is seen not as an exercise of an accountability mechanism, but simply and solely the exercise of another tribe's domination. It's a corruption of the very mechanisms of accountability. This goes really to the heart of the rule of law. It's very hard for our mechanisms for the rule of law to work if its um, main levers are um, corrupted in that way. <clears throat> so those are the threats I see. Right? How, how do you think that we can respond to these threats or face these challenges? So, <laughs> It's pretty obvious there are no easy solutions. <clears throat> um, I don't have any easy solution, but let me just tell you th this, I think. Mm -hmm. First of all, we must be more fully aware of these threats and, and the, where they're coming from. We have to scrutinize those activities that are um, proposed in legislation or in the political domain as reforms. We have to look at them not just at whether they um, conform to some formal laws, mm -hmm. but also what their political effect will be. Um, <clears throat> we can't be, we have to look at the political payoff and not just at the laws, and then ask the question, <clears throat> um, does this reform serve or undermine in any fundamental way the aim of the rule of law? Also, <clears throat> What I think we need to do is we need to energize our first responders. We need to demand and provide them resources for embracing the rule of law and its commitments. <clears throat> we have to get control of social media, um, which is um, a major problem. And we must support those efforts that enhance the transparency of government um, and strengthen protections for the media. It's very important to strengthen the protections for media, strengthen the protections and avoid at all costs um, attacks on the judiciary, mm -hmm. um, provide greater protection for civil society organizations and their ability to operate, um, and um, protections for peaceful, peaceful protest. There's no panacea there. Mm -hmm. um, there's not even a program but there is a set of aims that we should engage in. After all, the rule of law is, in the end, our responsibility. It's a responsibility we collectively hold and each have a part in it. <clears throat> so we must do what we can um, as individuals and as um, a, a political community um, to, provide, to avoid those, answer to those toxins um, and provide some kind of richer moral community and political community in which the rule of law can thrive. Mm -hmm. I mean, ironically, the rule of law is supposed to protect us, but we've got to protect it. That's the, that's the message in the end. Well, it seems so, just that if we have something to protect us, we, mm, need, to we protect need to protect it, the yeah. thing that protects us, in this sense. Indeed, right. <clears throat> well, there is a specific challenge that you address in your book about artificial intelligence, hmm. which is something extremely contemporary. <clears throat> yeah. And you say that the challenge is whether we use AI in law or we think about AI in the place of law. Right. Let's talk about that. Right. So here are, here's where I want to say <clears throat> we have to understand challenge and threat. Yes. They, they overlap a little bit. <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, I actually discuss um, artificial intelligence in two chapters of the book. <clears throat> The one is concerned with um, the, the rising power in a transnational domain of um, digital platforms, yeah. big tech, big data, all right? Um, you know all the names. Digital um, domination, right? Yes, digital domination. Um, that's a serious concern, and what makes it difficult um, is that it's 
so it's not territorial, mm-hmm. um, and so it's difficult for any one um, political community, one state, to to deal with it, even when it's within its own territory, because it has this trans-territorial um, power. Um, spend a lot of time explaining why it is that. Um, simply a manipulation of information, or rather a, ma- a manipulation of data, mm-hmm. is a form of power. Um, but it's, an en- it's a form of enormous power. Um, in some cases, um, rivaling and even extending beyond the power of states. Um, because it can manipulate the behavior and the minds of people in a way that... <clears throat> Um, states still are, I mean, old-fashioned states are still struggling to do. They like AI sometimes because that provides new tools for doing that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have to worry about the use of AI in surveillance. Um, very important. But also these big tech companies have at their disposal a form of power that we are now just struggling to find a way of handling. That's a threat. <clears throat> um, some people might want to say, as they, as they sometimes do about um, the rule of law in the international domain, there's no such thing as rule of law in that context. They, um, the, the thought of um, subjecting such power wielders to um, law um, is just a non-starter. Um, it doesn't make any sense. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense. I think it's absolutely essential. And so what we see there is not just a a reason for skepticism, or reason for the limiting of the rule of law, but a reason for worrying about um, those digital platforms, big tech and the like, as threats to the rule of law, and the need for the rule of law to get that under control too. Um, That requires an enormous amount of cooperation among states, because it's only going to be from within states and their cooperation that we can get get a handle. Europe has begun doing this in a way much more concentrated way than the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, the GDPR, for example, some now, was it 2018, I believe already, something like that, um, a few years ago, um, already <clears throat> was trying to get this under control. What I've tried to argue is that we need to think about control of the uh, digital platforms and like, not only in terms of the pr- protection of privacy of individuals, mm-hmm. but recognizing that the, the public goods that are lost and the, the, the goods that are lost and the, and the bads that are, the evils that are caused are public goods and public evils, um, not just suffered by individuals. So we need to get a grip on that in terms of the community's um, effort. <clears throat> um, and so... Um, the question is, how do we, how, um, how do we conceptualize that um, as a project not just of protecting privacy and putting in the hands of individuals the tools to um, protect themselves? That's mm-hmm. important. I'm not saying it isn't. But that won't get to the heart of it. And we need to have mechanisms, frameworks, within which we can address the, the public bads, the public evils. Um, and um, in terms that are um, recognize the, uh, the role of um, law and, and um, our po- governmental structures um, with respect to that. Now, you mentioned another concern I have, and that's the challenge that says um, it's, I think, a threat, mm-hmm. a genuine threat, and that comes from those who argue <clears throat> um, not only that, there's a role for artificial intelligence in the usual operations of law, but that down the road some, perhaps, um, maybe not so far away, we can think about artificial intelligence in the place of law. Um, you know, there's our, the Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court is Justice Roberts. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> some people have talked about Justice robots. <laughs> um, and they say, uh, you know, what we need is justice robots. Um, 
And in various ways, the thought that um, law can play, uh, artificial intelligence can play a very large role in the administration of law and in forms of social ordering and governance. That's AI in the place of law, not AI doing this or that discrete task within law, mm -hmm. um, helping lawyers do um, legal research, say, um, or helping <clears throat> um, um, police um, distribute their resources over a, um, a, a municipality so that it meets the needs of the, of the city. Um, but actually in the place of law, I worry about that. I worry about that a lot. Um, be, and, and the way to get at that, I've tried to, to argue, is to think about what's the difference between <clears throat> what I call computational intelligence mm -hmm. and legal intelligence. Um, computational intelligence being that of um, large language models and um, uh, similar kinds of mechanisms, um, algorithms and the like as opposed to the ordinary form of legal reasoning. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I try to demonstrate that there are really fundamental differences in the kind of, if you will, intelligence. Um, the computational intelligence is not about reasoning from norms to their application. Um, and it's not about, although it seeks to find patterns in data, it's not about, um, analogical reasoning, reasoning by example, um, for a couple of reasons. Um, the computational intelligence is a matter of, they call it prediction, but that's not really the right term for it, mm -hmm. um, because we're not trying to predict events that are, like, that are likely or not likely to happen. Um, we're, they trace correlations. They see in a mass of data, um, they, can, they can draw a correlation such that they can say, and all this stuff brings us to this bring attention to this correlate. Um, they do correlation, not prediction, and they don't do reasoning. Um, so computational intelligence um, is incapable of appreciating, for one thing, appreciating truth. Um, it manipulates data, but it has no connection to the real world. Um, so what it tells you is um, this correlate um, can be connected to this data, but it doesn't tell you anything about the relationship to the real world. <clears throat> More importantly to my mind is that it cannot appreciate values and norms. <clears throat> it can't recognize reasons as reasons for doing something, reasons for deciding, reasons for drawing a conclusion, reasons for making a decision on the basis of that, or reasons for action. So it doesn't have the idea of a connection between um, um, some kind of guidance and that providing reasons. Um, and the way in which the use of examples, as we they sometimes say in artificial intelligence, the, what, what happens there is that um, while analogical reasoning evaluates the examples and, and sees that from these, there's a justification for treating a new case in a similar way, mm -hmm. Artificial intelligence, computational intelligence counts. It counts the number of um, associated things, correlates. Um, evaluation is different from counting. Um, in the mode of social ordering, AI can oftentimes um, arrange our lives in such a way as that we are more ordered. Um, so for example, smart, um, various smart elements um, your elements in your car can get you to, can actually um, refuse to um, allow you to start your car. Um, if you have too much alcohol in your breath, it just will disable the ignition. Um, or if you're getting sleepy, it will pull the car over to the side of the road. Um, this is not a matter of giving you a direction. It's not like the street signs that say, um, drive in a neighborhood, drive here as if your children lived here. Mm -hmm. um, they're not norms. What they do is they goad your behavior into um, <clears throat> a desired track. Um, what's lost? That's the question. Mm -hmm. 
Those who are advocating AI in the place of the law don't say, it's legal reasoning. What they say is, so what? What's lost? So you have to say what's lost. Um, now, there may be a lot of things that we don't like about it that we think might be lost, but I'm thinking about this simply in terms of the rule of law. Mm -hmm. And in a word, <clears throat> what's lost is normativity. Now, that's too abstract a term to, to, to mean very much yet, but here's what I have in mind. The kind of governance that artificial intelligence in the place of law provides fails to recognize the moral agency <clears throat> of those who are directed and of officials. <clears throat> um, one of the things that AI can't capture is the way in which um, moving from um, a norm that, that um, a, a legal reasoner grasps and its application requires the exercise of judgment. But judgment is not just a matter of coming to a conclusion or intuiting a response. Judgment amounts to one, a kind of reasoning from the norm in its context to an application in a particular case, but also it involves responsibility, accepting responsibility for that decision. There's a, there's a gap that has to be closed, and the gap is closed by our reasoning that recognizes the responsibility of drawing it. There's no place for judgment in computational intelligence. <clears throat> There's no place for recognizing reasons as reasons, and there's no place for recognizing responsibility for the outcome. So we lose normativity in that rich sense. Um, so adjudication amongst, um, dis of, of disputes amongst persons is replaced with the administration of things. Secondly, I think what's lost is the opportunity for genuine participation in the legal processes by which particular applications of the law, as they would like to call them, which particular applications of the law are made. Um, no longer is there a chance for us to, as it were, have our say in what? In the, in the AI court, in the algorithm? Mm -hmm. algorithm. There's no place for that. There's no place for having a say in court, having one's reasons put before another, um, having a hearing of it. Actually connected with that as well is that um, the, um, one of the key features of law that's important, in my view, especially when we see it as a form of deliberative reasoning, is that it's possible for the law to correct itself through the processes of adjudication, the processes of um, <clears throat> working this body of norms into the lives of the community and members of that community in particular circumstances, um, the law can evolve, can correct itself. Not always well, but it does. It has the resources for self-correction. There are no resources in um, computational intelligence for that. Now, it can, we can change it. <clears throat> Um, but we change the design, at, we change at the design level, and it's by experts, not by those of us who are, shall we call them, consumers of the law. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> also, maybe this is, the, um, in, my, in my view, one of the most important problems. Um, what's lost is accountability. <clears throat> now, there's a lot of talk in the AI literature about um, computational or algorithmic accountability. See that term a lot being used, <clears throat> used a lot. Mm -hmm. um, but what they have in mind is um, what we would better call explainability. The accountability is to say, well, this is what in the mechanism brought about that outcome. Um, but that's not accountability. That's just telling you where it came from. Um, and um, it's the same way as analyzing um, when your thermostat in the house goes wrong, explaining how it um, needs to be corrected. But mm -hmm. that's explaining the mechanism, not accountability for the, um, 
exercise of judgment involved. Um, there's no calling to account those who are engaging in it. And we can, of course, um, look to the designers, but as these, as these mechanisms become more and more autonomous, it becomes difficult um, to even find the, the, the responsible designer for that bit or this bit or that. They become autonomous and so they go off on their own. Um, accountability is left out or it's put in the hands of experts. That's not you or me. Um, that's not people on the street. Um, so if we think, well, if we get transparency of how the mechanisms work, then, then we'll have accountability. But transparency, to me, of a, of a computational mechanism will mean nothing. Because I don't have the expertise to, to challenge that, to seek an explanation, to seek a, a remedy. Um, we need, so this puts all of the accountability to the head of experts. A small cadre of experts, actually. What worries me there is it's very easy to dominate a small cadre, and it takes that cadre completely out of the political community. So accountability of um, official decision-making, um, it seems to me, is deeply undermined. That's worrisome, and that's why I think it's a genuine threat, not just a skepticism. So. Do you think that also the way in which artificial intelligence functions and the way in which it could replace law um, is a threat to this value of membership, which we are talking about, <coughs> in the sense of maybe it alienates more the people, the community, yeah. or destroys the community? Um, so far, what I'd like to say, I think, <clears throat> is that the resources that law provides mm -hmm for um, binding a community together. It doesn't always succeed in this. I don't mean to be Pollyannish about it. Um, but the resources it provides are resources in which those who are really deeply divided in various ways can yet come around to um, a, um, a way of going on. Um, that is not just um, episodic. Mm -hmm. just this event and that event and that event, but actually ties the community to its history. Law has this um, capacity of looking back and forward. It's, it's, fa it's a Janus-faced Janus mm -hmm. kind of thing. It always looks back and then looks forward and, and brings them together. Um, law provides resources for doing that. That's very important for, as it were, maintaining um, a, 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 a basis for um, uh, moral community. Um, it also then provides a kind of public language in which the very terms of that association can be challenged from time to time. We can raise questions about it. We can address those terms of association. Um, and that provides us a way of, um, while we are disagreeing, um, getting on with the business of trying to find a way where everyone's dignity and freedom are respected. Um, so there are resources in the law that are simply not resources in computational intelligence that um, we can make use of um, that will never be available. So it's not a matter of um, um, the law doing a really good job and computational intelligence doing a really bad job. Mm -hmm. It's that computational intelligence provides no resources and law provides us resources, and our responsibility, our ambition should be to make it do it better, the law do it better. Um, <clears throat> so I think that on, on both sides of that, on the governance side and on the moral association side, um, we lose a great deal when we lose law. Well, thank you very much mm. for your participation in this first episode of the podcast. It was extremely interesting to hear you talk about the ideas that <laughs> uniform your last book, Law's Rule. And I wish you the best with your future research. It was delightful. Thank you so much for this opportunity and um, good luck in your projects. Thank you very much. <laughs>